Evidence and Answers. Did Jesus die for all mankind or just the elect? This is a question that many have asked and lots have debated. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on the show, Pat will be concluding his series, dealing with a wide variety of questions that people ask in regards to salvation. If you're unable to hear the entire study, keep in mind that all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, let's join Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to today's challenges. Well, we've been going through our series on questions about salvation, answering some of the most frequently asked and most difficult questions people ask regarding salvation. Well, did Jesus die only for the elect or for all mankind? What is the relationship between faith and good works? Well, we'll take a look at some of these and more in this series on questions about salvation. Now let's take a look at our first question. Did Jesus die for all mankind or just the elect? In other words, did Jesus die for everyone or just those who are predestined for salvation? The belief that Jesus died only for the elect, those predestined for salvation only, and not the world is called the doctrine of limited atonement. This is a position held by many who label themselves as Calvinists or strong Calvinists, that Christ only died for the elect, those destined to salvation and not the entire world. Well, what does the Bible teach? Well, I believe the Bible builds the case that indeed Jesus died for all and that his death is not just limited to the elect. Well, where do we find evidence for this? Well, we'll begin in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Writing of the Messiah, Isaiah wrote, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now the evident meaning of the word all there is everyone in the human race. Since in the beginning of the sentence, the same word all is used of those who go astray and are in need of salvation. Even John Calvin, commenting on this verse, said, I approve of the ordinary reading that he alone bore the punishment of many because on him was laid the guilt of the whole world. So it is evident from this and other passages, and especially from the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, that many sometimes denotes all. That comes from Calvin's comments on Isaiah chapter 53. Another passage we can look at is John chapter 3 verse 16. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now the term world there, for God so loved the world. The world there doesn't refer to just the elect, but all of mankind. He clarifies the use of this term world in three verses later. Jesus says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. So here Jesus defines for us what he means by world. He says light has come into the world. And here he includes saved and unsaved, because he says, but the men love darkness instead of the light. So here it is apparent 
that the term world here, for God so loved the world, means all of mankind. In John chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus states, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. In both cases, world signifies the same fallen, sinful world that will be judged in the last day. So when Jesus uses the term world there, he's speaking of all mankind, not just those who are saved. Romans 5, 6, Paul writes, Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 10, he adds, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Both the elect and non-elect were ungodly enemies. Therefore, either Christ died for the non-elect as well as for the elect, or Christ did not die for all his ungodly enemies. Further, if Paul meant to teach that Christ died only for the elect, he could easily have said so and thus avoided any potential misunderstanding. 1 John 2.2 states, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now the term world there refers to the entire world, saved and unsaved. John himself defines his use of the term world just a few verses later. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has done, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the term world there that John is using in 1 John 2 verse 2 is speaking of the entire world, saved and unsaved. And he is saying that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 2 Peter 2.1 states, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So Christ died even for the false prophets here, and they're clearly unbelievers. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is God's desire that all come to repentance in the saving knowledge of him. Therefore, it would make sense that his death was for the entire world, not just for the elect, because it is his intent that, and desire that everyone come to a saving knowledge of him. Now, having said that, this does not mean that everyone is saved. The atonement is limited in its application, but it is unlimited in its extent. Romans 10 says, Whosoever will believe. So the atonement is limited in its application, but unlimited in its extent. The invitation to come to Christ is extended to all, and to all who will believe the offer of salvation there is given. But it is only applicable. It only applies to those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's clearly illustrated in John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world, that's the save and unsaved, He loved everyone, that He gave His one and only Son. So Christ's sacrifice was given to the whole world. But, it says, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the salvation that God provides is only given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So the invitation is given to all, but salvation is only effective for those who trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now we come to the next question. What is the relationship of faith and good works? Well, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 make it very clear that we're saved by faith alone, not by good works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and other passages in the Bible, John 3.16, John 5.24, and others, clearly state that we're saved by faith or belief alone, not good works. Some are thrown into confusion when they read passages like James 2.26, which states, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So some are thrown into confusion and believe that faith and works brings salvation. Well, that would be contradictory to passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Romans 1, 16, John 3, 16, John 5, 24, and others. So do we have a contradiction here? Well, we've got to properly understand the relationship of faith and works and what James is saying in his particular book. The Bible teaches that faith alone puts one in right standing with God. Justification is accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. Therefore, faith alone saves. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul states, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Our salvation does not depend on our performance and do we meet God's standards. Our salvation is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ, and His work is perfect, and it accomplished and paid the full price of sin. The salvation message that teaches faith and good works is required is a perversion of the gospel message, as Paul states in Galatians chapter 2. In fact, many cults twist this, and especially the book of James, to teach that faith and works is required for salvation. Faith in Christ gets you into the game, but in order to win, now good works are required. And what good works does that cult often teach? Well, it means serving the organization faithfully, meeting their particular standards. So a church that teaches faith and works is required for salvation is perverting the gospel of grace, as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2. So what is the relationship of faith and good works? Well, true faith results in good works. We are saved not because of good works, but we're saved to do good works. We do not do good works in order to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. That is what James is teaching in his particular book. The theme of the book of James is authentic Christian faith. What does authentic Christian faith look like? 
And remember, James is writing to believers here who say they are believers in Christ. And so what is James saying? Well, James is saying, if you have true faith in Christ, then it will result in good works. See, being born again, receiving the Holy Spirit of God, becoming a new creation of Christ, repenting and turning from sin. Therefore, one good works and obedience to Christ should naturally follow one who has been born again and has received the Spirit of God and repented and turned from sin and turned to God. Good works should be the result of one's salvation, not in order to be saved, but because one is saved. So James is teaching here throughout his book that true, authentic Christian faith results in good works. So one is justified by faith alone. And that faith is usually authenticated because it is followed by a transformed life. However, the relationship between true faith and works is not automatic. Though it is natural, it is not inevitable, but normal. Saving faith may sometimes be dormant, even for long periods of time. Nonetheless, it is difficult to hide true faith in Christ. If it is there, it will tend to naturally and normally begin to manifest itself, although it may take some time. Paul talks about in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that there are three types of people, the spiritual man, the unsaved man, but then he talks about the carnal man. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. You are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? In other words, there are some who come to true saving faith in Christ, but remain immature and in a state of what we call carnality, or as Paul states, infants in Christ. So though they are truly saved, it may take a while for the fruits of the Spirit to really begin to manifest and show themselves in a believer's life. So although good works and the fruits of the Spirit naturally follow those who have truly trusted in Christ, it is not always inevitable. And so we need to be patient with some of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. It may take some time before the fruits of the Spirit and the good works really begin to manifest in their lives. Now, is there a difference between saving faith and non-saving faith or false belief and true belief? Well, certainly there is. James chapter 2, 19, James is rebuking the believers there and those who are fellowshipping in the body of Christ there and says, You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Demons believe in God. In fact, they have such a strong belief in God, they shudder in fear. So see, demons believe in God, but they're not saved. Well, what's the difference between true faith and false faith? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, on the judgment day, Jesus said this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. These were people who called Jesus Lord, Lord, and even did good works in his name. Yet Jesus tells them, I never knew you. 
So throughout the New Testament, it does teach there is indeed professing false faith. Those who claim to be Christians but are not truly saved and true believing faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what is the difference? Well, briefly, the difference is this. True saving faith involves the mind and the will, the mind and the heart. Saving faith does not merely understand the truth, but responds willingly and receives the truth, and a person gives their heart and their life and surrenders their life to Jesus Christ, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So saving faith involves not only understanding the truth, but a heart commitment, not just mental assent to the truth. Therefore, saving faith results in a changed attitude, a changed life of obedience, bearing the fruits of the Spirit and resulting in good works. A false confession of faith simply gives mental assent, but does not, as an act of the will, receive the truth and surrender one's heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So the false faith of the demons in James chapter 2, the demons mentally assent and believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God, but they have never surrendered their heart and given themselves under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Same thing with those in Matthew chapter 7. They have given mental assent to Jesus Christ, but they have not surrendered their heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and willingly received Him as their Lord and Savior. That's why Jesus looks at them and says, Depart from me, I never knew you. Well, then the next question follows. How do I know that I have true saving faith in Jesus Christ? Well, there's several evidences that we do indeed have true saving faith in Christ. First, do we have the right content of faith? Do we believe in the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do we believe in the true God and Jesus Christ, his only son, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Do we have the right content of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We're saved by faith alone, not by good works. Second, Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit dwelling in every believer. And Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit confirms it in our hearts. There's an assurance there. I know this is a more subjective thing, but there is an assurance of peace that resides in the believer that they are indeed the children of God. Next, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. True faith produces fruit. Now, it may be small fruit and may take a while for this fruit to appear, as I stated earlier. But indeed, true saving faith in a person that has been born again by the Spirit of God who has had a life transformed and surrendered his life to Christ eventually produces the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So true faith begins to produce fruits of the Spirit. It may begin small at first, but eventually they'll begin to show in the life of a believer. 
Next, true faith leads to a life of obedience. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. So a life of obedience shows that one has true saving faith. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's almost impossible for someone who has given their heart to Jesus Christ, who's given themselves to the Lordship of Christ, to continually live a life of unrepentant sin. Now, as Christians, we will sin, we will fall. However, a true believer in Christ does not remain in sin and continually and perpetually, in an unrepentant way, continue in his sin. Obedience to the commands of Christ mark the life of a believer. So they should be consistently obeying the commands of Christ. And finally, true faith endures. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, the praise of his glory. So true saving faith will endure. There may be moments where, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, a believer may fall into a state of carnality, but eventually a true believer in Christ, his faith shall endure to the end. Well, this concludes our series on questions about salvation. Hopefully I address some of the most popular and most difficult challenges and questions regarding our salvation in Jesus Christ. If you did not hear this entire series, I invite you to go to our website, evidenceandanswers.org, and you can hear the entire series as I answer some of the most popular and most challenging questions regarding our salvation in Christ. Thank you for being with us throughout this entire series, and I look forward to being with you all again here on Evidence and Answers. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>